This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. We all know those first wonderful words in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, this is not just an introduction to Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. It's a declaration that He was present and active at creation, pre-existing eternally with God the Father as the second person of the Trinity. And that's just the opening of of a magnificent book of the Bible that also focuses on the signs that Jesus gave to people who wanted them in order to know who he was. But what did those people do with those signs? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. He is research professor of New Testament and biblical theology and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the founder of Biblical Foundations, an organization devoted to encouraging a return to the biblical foundations in the home, the church, and society. And today we'll be discussing his book, Signs of the Messiah, an introduction to John's gospel. Dr. Kostenberger, great to have you with us. How are you? Uh, very well. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Janet. I'm thrilled to be uh, with you today. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. I really have been enjoying your book. You say the Gospel of John is about these signs. It's all about these mm-hmm. signs people asked Jesus for, and then the signs he gave them and what they did with them. Why is that a key component and a key theme in the Gospel of John, the issue of signs? Yes, uh, it seems like uh, John is strategically focusing on the evidence that uh, Jesus gave that he was, in fact, the Messiah that was promised long ago by the prophets in the Old Testament. And so uh, the idea was that, that when Jesus came, he, he provided to, uh, you know, more than sufficient evidence for people to believe in him. He, you know, he healed the sick, even raised the dead, he, he opened the eyes of the blind, and all those things were uh, what was predicted in, in Isaiah and in the other prophets. And so it, it, it has the effect of what what sometimes is called a theodicy, meaning that it, it, the, uh, the fault for not uh, believing didn't lie with God for, you know, lack of evidence. It, it is squarely on people who are too caught up in their own world and their own preconceived notions of, the, of who the Messiah, uh, you know, was supposedly going to be. Yeah, you're right about that. And of course, John is a very interesting gospel because unlike the synoptic gospels, you don't have a reference to Christ in the manger. You don't have the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have any parables. The signs are really the feature here. Why is yes. John's gospel so different from the synoptic gospels when you compare it to the other three? Oh, another great question. You know, I think uh, most believe that, that he wrote about a generation after the earlier three and that he most likely knew them. And so there's no point in kind of reinventing the wheel. So he pretty much presupposes that people know the basic gospel story. But, you know, one of the church fathers uh, called John the spiritual gospel. And I think by that he meant that, that John just goes even deeper than the, the first three gospels in, in, in trying to understand, uh, you know, who Jesus was and and what it takes to believe in him. So the 
earlier three Gospels focus primarily on the miracles, you know, the powerful, authoritative displays of Jesus' power. And then John comes along, and he wants to show that somebody could benefit from the miracle, uh, like the 5,000. You know, they ate the bread and they ate the fish, but if they didn't believe in him, then the purpose of the signs was thwarted, because the very purpose was not just for people to be awed by Jesus' power. The purpose was that they would actually place their trust in him. Yes. Right. So when you're talking about John chapter 1 as a chiasm, you say the central affirmation there is that to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Why focus on that one verse? Why is that the central affirmation, going back to John 1? Yeah, so the uh, the prologue that, that, you know, introduces the gospel, first 18 verses, uh, I think anybody reading that sees how carefully crafted it is. There's this beautiful cadence, and you read verse 1, you know, and so uh, scholars commonly believe that the heart of it, chiasm, uh, which is basically kind of an A, B, C, B, A structure, <laughs> it's kind of like a staircase, you know, if you go up to the top and then you go back down, and so the, on the very top is the affirmation, as you mentioned, that uh, to anyone who believes in Jesus, he gave them the right to become God's children. And so that addresses our need, right? As, uh, we're not just primarily here to uh, simply acknowledge who Jesus is. You know, he's God, as important as that is. But in the end, he came to meet our deepest need, which is that of salvation from sin and, you know, to be able to be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him in heaven. Right. That is so central. So when you're talking about the Cana cycle, this is chapters two through four, you reference the fact that Jesus performed several signs there in Cana. Uh, People will recall, of course, the Lord turning water into wine there at the wedding. Talk about the significance of that, what those signs in the Cana cycle were, were really revealing about the Lord. Yeah, so the the total seven signs, and as you mentioned, the first three are in that Cana cycle where uh, Jesus is shown to perform uh, this uh, turning water into wine at a wedding, and then uh, later on he heals a, uh, a royal official's, uh, official's son long distance, which is a very hard miracle to perform, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure. Uh, I think it's it's intriguing that that little village in Cana isn't even mentioned in the earlier three Gospels. And so again, John, uh, you know, doesn't reinvent the wheel. He basically supplements the earlier three and shows that Jesus' earlier signs were in many ways very inconspicuous. The one, the, the first one, the turning water into wine, was almost done kind of behind the scenes. And uh, uh, yet... Uh, for Jewish people, weddings were a time of celebration and of joy, and there's even uh, Messianic references in the Old Testament related to the, you know, the end-time uh, Messianic banquet where the Messiah would function as the bridegroom, and, and the church would be his bride. And so there's those overtones that Jesus, by performing this amazing miracle that that for some reason, the earlier three Gospels bypassed, uh, he presented himself as this messianic bridegroom, as yes. it were. Yeah, which is so neat when you tie it all together. But yet he's emphasizing his time has not yet come. And that's kind of a theme, isn't it, where the Lord is yep. really kind of pulling back some of the expectations of people who are trying to figure out who he really is. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, it, it, it's partly a matter of, of, of 
people having their own kinds of expectations, and you you see that all the way through, and, and Jesus turned out to be somebody other than who people expected to be. And I think for us today, the same is true, right? That sometimes we expect Jesus or expect God to to be different from the way he turns out to be. And so it challenges us to be open to to uh, to the Lord's leading in our lives, to answering prayers maybe either differently or <laughs> at times, you know, with a delay. So I think there's some very perennial lessons that we can learn even today from the way Jesus is portrayed in the Gospel of John. Well, absolutely. And and another theme uh, involving signs in John 2 involves Jesus cleansing the temple, which is such a fascinating passage. But it's yeah. interesting after he says, you know, don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered zeal for your house will consume me. And then they asked him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What is the purpose? Why do they ask him that question? Yes, uh, I think John tries to show that there was a misunderstanding, that that uh, people wanted to have some sort of a, uh, a sign of authority. I think in the first place, because the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish authorities, they were really in charge of the temple area. And so Jesus had just essentially violated their authority. And so they're basically confronting him and say, what rights do you have to do? Uh, do you have to overthrow the tables of the money changers and to scatter the you know, the doves and, and the sacrificial animals. And uh, so there's a bit of a double meaning in that. You know, they're demanding a sign from Jesus, but Jesus, rather than giving them a sign, explains the significance of what he's just done, which mm-hmm. is that he's just acted prophetically uh, and portrayed by his action of, uh, of overthrowing those those tables and so forth, the fact that, that God will judge the temple, the temple will be destroyed, and then the evangelist tells us that Jesus is going to be that temple, that, you know, spiritual house, if you will, uh, in and through which people will render worship. And so, in the end, that temple cleansing, John tells us, points to uh, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection after three days. That's right. Hang on just a moment. We need to pause for a short break. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, Signs of the Messiah is his book. We'll come back right after this. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Jesus Christ. That's exactly why we're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends a Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, and God bless you for caring. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. 
More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. And also great to have with us Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology and Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're talking about his book called Signs of the Messiah, an Introduction to John's Gospel, which is just a great read. I'm learning so much going through this book. One of the signs we were talking about before we went to the break, Dr. Kostenberger, involved Jesus cleansing the temple. And you made a really good point when the Jews were asking him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They were kind of questioning questioning his authority, but Jesus's explanation was explaining the significance of what he had done. And I think a lot of modern readers will read some of the explanations Jesus gives when people are trying to demand answers and say, why was Jesus so oblique sometimes? Why did he not really tell them flat out more often, this is what's going on. This is who I am. This is what's coming. Why, why did he answer in, in the way that he often did? Yeah, I mean, that's a mystery to some extent. I think uh, uh, one reason might be that the, Jesus had determined that, that his opponents, you know, the Jewish authorities, had already determined to reject him partly out of turf protection, part, partly out of, you know, jealousy or, or, or just, uh, you know, lack of spiritual understanding. And so he knew he couldn't, you know, talk to them directly. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes he does in the Gospel of John, and he points, he says, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the miracles, believe in the works that I'm doing, just judge for yourself if an ordinary, you know, man could do some of the things I'm doing. Uh, In the other Gospels, Jesus tells um, uh, parables, of course, you know, that that also are only intelligible to those who have uh, at least a certain amount of spiritual understanding, but intriguingly in John's Gospel, there's no parables, and I think the reason is that John wants to make the point that there's enough to be learned spiritually from, from real-life events in Jesus' life. So uh, you don't even need to go to parables. You can just see the hidden meaning that's accessible only to people who are open-minded right. to the revelation and who uh, are seekers for spiritual truth. And I think the same is still true today. Well, I agree with you. And I'm thinking in particular of Matthew 13, where there's the parable of the sower, one of the accounts of the parable of the sower. And then Jesus explains what he, he means to the multitudes. But then the disciples ask him, why are you talking in parables? And his answer is basically, you know, I'm telling parables because they don't understand, but you do. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. And it ties right into what you were saying that, you know, he's not going to go into all kinds of detail with those who won't believe in him. Going back to what you originally said, which is, mm-hmm. you know, demanding signs and not accepting them is on us. That's not on God whatsoever. Exactly. And you see that same dynamic again in the feeding of the multitude, where again, they say, OK, now, uh, you know, Moses, uh, he brought down the manna from heaven in the in the wilderness. What are you going to do? You yeah, know, right. and uh, he had just fed the multitudes. And so 
you know, they're demanding a sign, and by that, reveal that they missed the sign that he just performed. Good point. Yes. Now, what do you make of Nicodemus in John 3 and his response mm-hmm. where he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. This is on the heels of the signs that he demonstrated in Cana. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And of course, that famous passage after that is Jesus saying, yep. I, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That particular passage is very interesting. How do you see that in the context of the signs of the Messiah? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think uh, the fact that Nicodemus acknowledges signs, uh, and of course he's in Jerusalem, right, in the, in the capital, uh, and Jesus has just performed the cleansing of the temple, uh, suggests to me that that was one of the signs Jesus performed in Jerusalem. And so when John talks about the first sign in Cana, the turning of water into wine at the beginning of chapter 2, and then the second sign in Cana at the end of chapter 4, the healing of the uh, centurion's son, uh, those those are just the, 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 the enveloping, you know, the bookends of the Cana cycle, as it were. But then in between, you have wedged uh, several uh, signs in Jerusalem, the temple cleansing being the main one that John saluted. Nicodemus here shows that he has some understanding that Jesus was performing those signs, but he is open, but not sufficiently spiritually attuned to to you know figure it all out at least at that point right you know that he occurs uh he recurs again later a couple times in the gospel and the the third and last time he's actually uh, burying jesus body uh and and there's maybe a you know you might call him a bit of a covert disciple at that point so there's there seems to be a certain amount of progression when you look at uh, nicodemus throughout the gospel Well, right. And then, of course, there's another section that you call this festival cycle. This is John chapters 5 through 10. And again, this involves healings of the lame man in Jerusalem. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. before the feeding of the 5,000. How did these signs differ, if at all, from those in the Cana cycle? Or how would you differentiate this period of the festival cycle in a different, you know, in a different context than the Cana cycle, if there is a different context? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that John is such a just a careful author who structures the material. You know, when you think about it, you know, Jesus did so many things uh, in, in the three and a half years that, that you know, he walked the earth uh, as part of his public ministry, and John says as much at the very end of the Gospel, you know, not the not even the whole, the, the books in the whole world, you, know, you could write everything down, so he has to be selective, and so he structures the first, um, you know, cycle in terms of ministry from Cana to Cana, and then uh, for some reason, he chooses in chapters 5 through 10, the second half of that so-called book of signs, chapters 1, focus on Jesus attending certain festivals in Jerusalem, or at least, you know, uh, Jewish festivals, uh, Passover, uh, Tabernacles, uh, and then at the end, the Feast of Dedication. And I think by that, he shows that Jesus is really the, the replacement, if you will, of the Jewish festival calendar, not mm-hmm. that today it couldn't be meaningful for uh, Jews or even Christians to, you know, maybe celebrate, you know, Passover. But uh, Jesus, of course, fulfilled the very meaning of the Passover, for instance, when he gave his 
his life on the cross for our sins, you know, as the Lamb of God. So right. I think that's the message that John wants to convey. That's so neat. That is really neat. So going on to John 11 and 12, this is the Lazarus cycle. And one of the yep. most amazing miracles, obviously, Jesus ever performed was raising Lazarus from the dead. But that also was foreshadowing his own resurrection. Um, and we also have the anointing of Jesus, which is an interesting mm-hmm. passage as well. What, what are those telling us, those particular signs that we're seeing yes, there. Uh, fascinating. You know, uh, Lazarus, uh, not mentioned in the uh, first three Gospels, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that's a different Lazarus as far as we know. Uh, you know, so Lazarus, clearly a man who'd been dead for four days, um, and, you know, uh, his sisters mentioned that, you know, his body is already emitting an odor and everything. So probably the most stunning miracle Jesus ever performed for whatever reason, you know, it's only John who then uses that, and, and he uses it so strategically, he makes it the very climax of, you know, the, as you mentioned, the seventh and final sign, which is foreshadowing Jesus' own resurrection, which, of course, is utterly unique. Right. Um, and so, yes, this is the, the seventh and climactic sign, and the point is, if people still don't believe after that seventh greatest sign, then they're just so hardened in their unbelief that, that you know, Jesus might as well, uh, you know, stop performing any more Messianic signs, because if that doesn't convince them, you know, nothing will. Right. Well, that's interesting. And it's funny when you look at what the chief priests and the Pharisees said when they gathered the council together and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, that's pretty transparent what their motivation is. But then you have Caiaphas, the high priest, who says, you know, nothing at all. So that's an interesting contrast right there. Yeah, I mean, there's this uh, really that division, right, between the, the, the people, you know, who feel like, listen, I mean, you know, what more will the Messiah do? But then it's mostly the authorities that are very dead set against him. And so uh, John shows that it's not necessarily, you know, some people accuse John of anti-Semitism, you know, but I think that's just totally missing the point, because the point is, is not that every Jew rejected him, the, 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 the 12 apostles were all Jews, right? Right. Uh, but uh, the fact that the Jewish leaders tragically rejected the very Messiah whom God sent to them. And so uh, I think that is, at the end of chapter 12, the conclusion of what people have called the Book of Signs. Wow. Well, speaking of Caiaphas, this is interesting, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. When he he said that he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see this as tying back to the central affirmation in the prologue? I do, and I also think this is the signal that because the the Jewish authorities have determined to reject the Messiah, uh, the result is going to be that the Gentiles, non-Jews, will then also be able to to be, uh, you know, brought into the fold. Uh, in, in in John 10, uh, Jesus says that, you know, I have other sheep also that are us praying, and it will be one flock and one shepherd. And, and then Greeks come to Jesus, right? Again, non-Jews, and they want to see him. And Jesus, uh, in chapter 12, verse 20 following, responds a little bit kind of evasively. You know, you never know. Did they get to see him or not? And I think the idea is Jesus says, 
And I, when I'm lifted up, I will bring all people to myself, meaning all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles. So mm-hmm. you're right, there's a movement that opens up the scope of salvation beyond the original intended recipients of salvation to Jewish people, but then also to everyone. And so that's where the banner verse in John uh, 3.16 comes in, that whoever believes in Jesus uh, can be saved. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I think you make such an excellent point that the problem ultimately is not that the Lord didn't give people signs that he was the Messiah. Ultimately, it was that there were so many who didn't like the signs that they were being given. And and that really points back to the very central problem of sin that we all have, that our sin Mm -hmm. and our unbelief in the Messiah ultimately is on us, not on God or his ability to give evidence for Jesus as his promised Messiah. But what a wonderful book, Signs of the Messiah, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger with us. And what a delight. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kostenberger. Really enjoyed having you. Thank you. Great to be with you, Janet. God bless you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. I don't understand why people continue to give airtime to Dr. Fauci. Your 15 minutes are up, kind of like our 15 days to slow the spread. (laughs) It's about 400 days now. Yeah, he's extended his 15 minutes to about 400 days. He, I don't think anybody's going to be able to get him off TV absent a gong show hook. It's just going to be, okay, Fauci, enough is enough. Every day he's contradicting something he said before or saying something over the top or double masking or, you know, who knows, just whatever it keeps, you know, whatever keeps him on TV. Here's one of the latest from CNN. Dr. Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who also happens to be the highest paid employee in government, has previously said that elementary school age kids won't likely be vaccinated until the first quarter of 2022 as vaccine developers continue to study their effects in children. But asked by Face the Nation host Margaret Brennan whether parents can send their kids to summer camp without vaccines, Fauci said it is conceivable that that will be possible conceivable how did we elect you why is it conceivable maybe i mean i don't know if your kids can go to camp or playgrounds uh, excuse me dr fauci have you actually looked at the data on kids and covid and kids being able to live through covid pretty much universally and be asymptomatic in most cases. Uh, I know it's difficult for you in between your TV appearances to actually look at data. It's absolutely incredible. It's incredible what this guy gets away with saying. Absolutely amazing. Now, he was asked over on CBS, if parents are vaccinated, do they still need to be concerned about their children playing in groups? This was quite a cut. This is cut four. Yeah, the children can clearly wind up getting infected. When we talk about what you can do when you're vaccinated, you can certainly have members of a family, if the adults are vaccinated, and you're in the home with your child, you don't need to wear a mask and you can have physical contact. When the children go out into the community, 
you want them to continue to wear masks when they're interacting with groups from multiple households. No. I don't know how much clearer I can be on this. I didn't ask you for your opinion, and I don't really care what your opinion is. That's ridiculous. Enough. Enough with you great resetters. I'm tired of listening to you. I'm tired of listening to you changing your stories and oppressing people and using your leftist ideology to go against actual science. This guy's incredible. Not only that, but on this CNN special, Dr. Fauci credited himself for the rapid rollout of the COVID vaccines, which credit is actually due to former President Trump. This was cut three. When I saw what happened in New York City. Refrigerated trucks are now being mobilized as makeshift morgues. Almost overrunning of our health care system. It was like, oh my goodness. And that's when it became very clear that the decision we made on January the 10th to go all out and develop a vaccine. We have a number of vaccine candidates. may have been the best decision that I've ever made with regard to an intervention as the director of the Institute. Unbelievable. BizPack Review reports this development for the vaccines obviously began under Trump's presidency and was carried out by Operation Warp Speed. And Trump was the one who said earlier this month in a statement, I hope everyone remembers when they're getting the COVID-19 vaccine that if I weren't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful shot for five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers. Yes, President Trump, we remember now in this revisionist atmosphere, Fauci and Joe Biden and other people are always trying to take the credit for the vaccines, despite what the truth is. These people couldn't care less what the truth is. They're out there jockeying for position. They're out there trying to, you know, puff themselves up as some kind of wonderful saviors of some kind. I'm over it. Can you tell I'm over it? I'm completely over it. Uh, I'm not over this, though. This is kind of funny. This was making the rounds not too long ago, and I have not had the chance thus far to play it on the show, but I want you to listen to this. This is a man by the name of Kerry Mullis. He's deceased, but Kerry Mullis won a 1993 Nobel Prize, and it, he won the Nobel Prize for inventing the PCR testing process. Now, you may say to yourself, the way I did, what in the world is a PCR testing process? Well, the National File reports that that is the polymerase chain reaction testing process later used to diagnose coronavirus cases. Guess what he had to say about Dr. Fauci back in the day? This, cut five. What is it about humanity that, 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 that wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. He, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people to pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. And there you have it. There you have it from a coronavirus expert and a Nobel Prize winner. It'd be interesting to interview him now if he were still alive. I'm sure he would have lots of good comments, but it really tells you a lot, doesn't it? This guy is a bureaucrat and he is the one who's always trotted out because he's a leftist. 
So they love him. So they let him just go on and on and on. If he had actually been somebody like Dr. Scott Atlas, they would be maligning him and they would be doing everything they could to not even give him a voice in the media. And they would be trying to destroy him on Twitter because so, that's how it works. I got to play this for you, too. They were having this CDC Zoom kind of meeting thing and talking about this vaccine passport proposal. This is chilling. I'm going to get into this in just a couple of minutes. But listen to this from the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. This is so unprofessional. Listen to what she had to say. This is cut two. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth, even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. I know that feeling of nausea when you read the crisis standards of care and you wonder whether there are going to be enough ventilators to go around and who's going to make that choice. And I know what it's like to pull up to your hospital every day and see the extra morgue sitting outside. I didn't know at the time when it, would, when it would stop. We didn't have the science to tell us. We were just scared. We have come such a long way. Three historic scientific breakthrough vaccines, and we are rolling them out so very fast. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director, not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. Okay. First of all, if you're in a professional position with the Centers for Disease Control, I don't really care about your position as a wife and a daughter and a mother. What they're doing here is they're preying on people's emotions. I'm scared. I'm so scared. You know what? I don't want somebody who's hysterical in that kind of a position in the government because the people who are in those sorts of positions ought to be the most rational, logical, reasonable, facts-driven, data-driven professionals that we can possibly find. I don't know who this is supposed to appeal to, I guess to a lot of Karens out there who are just going to continue the freak out so these great resetters can continue to have us under their control and under their thumb. But I'm not buying it. I think it's completely unprofessional. I don't care about your feelings of impending doom. If that's how you operate, if that's how your mind works, you shouldn't be in that position. Maybe you could go work somewhere else where feelings matter, you know, maybe be in an art class or a musician or something like that. It, that's fine. But, but at the CDC, we don't need a lot of feelings and scared and please, I'm speaking to you as a wife and mother. Give me a break. Give me a break. It's so condescending. We're going to get into the vaccine passport that Biden wants. Unbelievable. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives and souls by meeting moms where they are and introducing them to their preborn babies through ultrasound. As soon as I saw that heartbeat, it was over. 
I cried the hottest tears I've ever cried, and I felt a fire in my belly and in my soul, and God touched me that day. He pierced my heart for my child, and I felt love. Preborn stands in the gap for abortion-minded women across America by providing free ultrasounds and the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. When a mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she'll choose life eight out of ten times. For your gift of $140 today, you can help rescue five preborn babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax-deductible. There's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com or call now 855-402-2229. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, Call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. I always feel like I need to issue a little bit of a caveat when I make a little rant like I just did. I am not against wives, mothers, and daughters. I happen to be all three of those things. That's not what I'm getting at. So I hope nobody misunderstands me when I say that the CDC director who's up there whining on the Zoom conference for the CDC going, I have a recurring feeling of impending doom and I'm scared and I'm speaking as a wife and a daughter. Oh, no, we just have to hang on a little bit longer. No. You know what? I'm with James Coates. That's who I'm with. Good old James Coates, the pastor of Grace Life Church up in Canada, returned to the pulpit on Sunday. Praise God. And I want him to uh, have a little voice here. I'm going to play a little bit of what he had to say. Listen to cut one. This is all to the Lord. Um, It's amazing to me how one act of obedience in a little wee RCMP office in little wee Spruce Grove could have the impact that it did. I couldn't sign that condition. And, um, and the rest is history. So, and so anyway, it's a blessing to be back. I, you can just know that I'm incredibly overwhelmed. I don't think I understand the fullness of what's happened. I, um, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around everything. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bear back up under the responsibilities of pastoral ministry and, and all that that demands of me. And, and so you can just know that I'm, I'm overwhelmed, um, but I'm, I'm immensely grateful. I am, I'm immensely thankful to the Lord, to you. I love you and, and I've missed you dearly. And um, I'm excited to be back. Well, I'm excited he's back as well. Just to refresh your memory, this is the pastor who was jailed in February for flouting COVID-19 public health measures, which were ridiculous. And we've gone into detail on that before. They have continued at that church to hold packed Sunday services, as uh, the local media reports. And, you know, they've 
been a target. And and you should read some of the comments people have on Twitter. It's absolutely nuts how people look at this pastor as if he's some sort of personal super spreader. It's absolutely ridiculous. They're making an example of this man. If the pandemic is so incredibly serious that they have to release prisoners, how is it that they can keep a pastor in jail for what was it, 35 days? 35 days he was at the Edmonton Remand Center after not agreeing to follow court orders if he was released. Coates, according to this Edmonton paper, said it was his dedication to Jesus Christ that was putting him at odds with the law before receiving a $1,500 fine from the court. After his guilty plea, several other charges against Coates were withdrawn and he was released from jail with no court-ordered conditions. Uh, And I'm sure they're going to go after him again because that's what government does. They don't like people who won't comply. Do you understand? It's all about control. It's not about logic. I don't know how many people I've had the conversation with when I say, you know, these masks don't work, right? You know that the holes in these masks are bigger than the coronavirus, so the coronavirus can get through it. And even OSHA says this. Let me play the audio from the OSHA video that I played a couple of weeks ago on my show. You can listen to what the government it says itself says about these masks and the ineffectiveness of these flimsy masks that most of us are wearing. You cannot reason with people who are scared, Period. Everything, when it becomes about emotions rather than rational thought and reasonable, logical thinking, if it's all about emotions, you're not going to get anywhere with anybody. You're just not. When people are hysterical, they're easy to control. All you have to do is continue to freak them out. Let me remind you about the insanely high numbers of people who survived the coronavirus. Think about it this way. Name another disease where you could have between a 96 and a 98% survival rate and you wouldn't leave your house without the vaccine. Now, I'm not negating that there are people in vulnerable conditions and elderly people who really should get it. And, and I, that's totally up to them. And I, and I understand why they would want to do that. And I support them in that. But for the rest of us, I guess what's in our future is a COVID uh, passport. Crazy. New York state officials, according to the Washington Times, launched a digital pass that New Yorkers can download to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test. It's called the Excelsior Pass, and it will be accepted at major entertainment venues like Madison Square Garden and Albany's Time Union Center. The app is similar to a mobile airline boarding pass and uses a secure QR code that can be stored in a smartphone or printed out. And officials said the technology doesn't store or track private health data within the app. Wait a minute. I thought masks were worked. Explain to me if masks work, why do you need the vaccine? Why do you need the vaccine if masks work? Nobody should be getting the virus. As long as we wear the masks, nobody will get the virus. Oh, it's just scofflaws who don't wear masks enough or because you have children playing with other children and they're not masking. They're the ones who continue to spread. Do you see what I mean? All of these inconsistencies in what these people are pushing down our throats. Masks. You got to have masks and social distancing. Okay, then why do we need a vaccine? If a vaccine, you still can't travel. Why? Well, you could still spread it. Well, then why would you get a vaccine? That's not even promoting the vaccine then. If you still have to be masked, you still have to social distance and you can't travel, even if you've had the vaccine, then why should you get it at all? And and there are just not enough James Coates out there, not enough people who are questioning these people. 
vaccine passports on the way, according to The Washington Post. And I'm going back to CNN as, as well. The Biden administration is working to develop a system for people to prove they've been vaccinated. It says multiple government agencies are engaged in conversations and planning coordinated by the White House as this kind of system will play a role in multiple aspects of life, including potentially the workforce. What constitutional right does this guy have to make people get vaccines or else? None. Under current law, he can't do it. Can laws be changed? Certainly. Do you think he will go through Congress in order to change a law, in order to invoke COVID-19 passports on the population? I don't believe it for a second, because that's not how leftists do things. They do it like gun control. They do it through executive action. That's how he did what he's doing on the border. That's how he's doing what he's doing with climate. Who cares about Congress? Makes you sick. Makes you absolutely sick. And you read what's going on in this Washington Post story. Listen to this portion of it. Proof of vaccination may be a critical driver for restoring baseline population health and social commercial and leisure activities. Wait a second. Commercial activities. That's not like going to a concert. That's commerce. Wait a minute. So are you talking about buying and selling? You can't buy or sell unless you have a COVID-19 passport. That sounds like Mark of the Beast type of stuff, doesn't it? Sure does. I'm not saying it is, but it sure sounds like it. And then, of course, the reporter on this story. Well, I didn't say that. We're reading your story. It could affect social, commercial, and leisure activities. This is from slides in March prepared by the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Okay, well, words out. What will the population do now? The population that watched for an entire year, hundreds if not thousands of small businesses closing their doors because they went completely bankrupt due to their obedience to their government, which was acting in accordance with emergency health orders that in many, many, many cases were not even constitutional. And when they were challenged in court, the people who were the plaintiffs in those cases prevailed over and over and over again. You know, I I go back to this very important principle as an American, a very important principle that we're losing as a population. We, the people, run this country. And we have conceded that to a bunch of people in Washington, D.C., who act like our overlords and, might I say, teetering on the edge of our dictators. First of all, there's no reason that Andrew Cuomo should have a job as the governor of New York. And there's no reason that Ralph Northam should have a job as the governor of Virginia. But those guys stay in power. It doesn't matter. Sexual harassment allegations, allegations of racism when he appeared in blackface. I'm talking about Northam. Talking about in Fantaside being fine if a baby is born alive during an abortion. None of that matters. Those guys get to keep their jobs, no problem. Cuomo can send thousands of elderly people into nursing homes with COVID-19 and thousands more people die because of that policy. And then he can cover it all up and he still has a job. Oh, he's emboldened. And you just get a bunch of national Democrats like Nancy Pelosi. Oh, no, this is bad. You say something about Cuomo. Oh, Cuomo really shouldn't shouldn't be doing what he's doing and maybe he should go. And then you just ignore it and stay in office. Why? That's evidence of sheeple. Sheeple putting up with it. And you know what? If you put up with that kind of tyranny, you're going to get what you deserve. You really will. We need to remind people what it is to be an American. And more than that, we need to remind people that our rights come from God. 
We don't get rights because Democrats decide Today, I'm going to give you a right to this and a right to that and a right to another thing. You don't give me any rights, politicians. My rights come from God. We need to remember that and we need to stand on that. That's how we maintain and preserve freedom as God designed us to have it. I'm grateful to be an American and I thank the Lord for every single person in this country who is aware and is fighting for the cause of freedom. We need it now more than ever. We got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us. On Janet Mefford today, help us send Bibles to Africa. $5 sends one Bible through Bible League International's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Thank you.